Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. We're going to examine some stuff tonight that, uh, in the book of Judges that I typically wouldn't do with a uh, student audience, and uh, not, not to be shock value, uh, because I think sometimes even as a church, uh, we want so desperately uh, to almost sanitize this text. We take away anything that might be offensive, take away anything that might rock the feathers, take away anything in there that's kind of like, oh, I'm uncomfortable with that, and we're going to we're gonna let the Bible speak for itself a few times. But in order to, to jump into some of the topics that man, God gets into, they are tough, tough, tough topics. And rarely uh, do you see God saying that he is full-on angry. There's several times in the Old Testament, but it's not, it's not something he does all the time. And uh, we're going to look at a time tonight where God just says, I'm angry. I'm ticked off. And uh, it, it's, uh, it's going to be powerful. But hey, I always like to start off with something a little bit fun. And we've got a point that we're going to make. Uh, just to kind of get to know each other, maybe go around your table, just get ready your first name, and then uh, here's a question, and I'm going to make it some exorbitant amount because I don't know what kind of home you own. So if somebody showed up at your house tonight, and you there, and they, they pull up, they got a briefcase full of cash, and they're willing to give you $5 million for your home, okay? I don't think we have anybody in Ornogo area that's got a $5 million home. If you do, just say, yeah, I'm not going to take it. Uh, but for $5 million, there you go. I had to pick a high number. $10 million. They're going to give you $10 million for your home right now. And everything that's in it, your family comes with you, okay? Pets, they come with you, all of that. Uh, except for, like, the ones you don't want. You can leave them in the house. But they say you get to go inside and take one thing with you. One thing. You get to choose one thing to take out of the house with you in addition to children and family, okay? One thing goes home with you. Don't make this, like, dark. Make it fun. You know, my son, I did this with my son Levi. I took him. We do these rites of passage with our kids. And I, I just threw it on him. He's 16 years old. Like, all right, Levi, what would you take? You know, I'm thinking, he says, I'm going to take all my wrestling medals or something like that. Nope. Uh, he says, I, I take my bear. Uh, because when he was 13, we went to Alaska together and he shot a bear. And, uh, and he says, man, I can't have that back. He says, I can never repeat that trip and have that bear in that moment. Like, wow. I feel bad. I was going to take a laptop or something dumb. <laughs> so anyway, go ahead and introduce yourself, give your name, uh, and they, they say, what's the one thing? You're going to run inside, you get, you get 30 seconds to walk in and grab it, or however long you need to pick it up and haul it out. doesn't matter. One thing you get, you got to go. What is it? Name or what would it be? Let's do this. Yeah, like, yeah. All right, here we go. So uh, we'll talk about idolatry tonight. That's the that's topic of discussion. And, uh, and I do that just, just that phone call. Um, for me, it was my, uh, I chose a laptop because it's, uh, it's different when I grew up. Uh, we actually, like when I was a kid, you get out these big, thick books with like this plastic stuff where pictures were shoved in behind them and the pages stuck together and they, every time you want to look at them and you flip through them. And, uh, and now I'm like, we, we don't print pictures anymore. It's like, the ink costs too much is what my wife says. But anyway, uh, we don't print pictures anymore. It's all on the laptop. So I said I'd take our laptops so we have all of our family pics because I'm like, I want, I want family pictures. So um, as we start thinking about this text, um, tonight is I'm going to be made, covering a lot of ground tonight. And so and if you're one of those note takers and all that kind of stuff, don't get stressed out. We're just going to cover a whole lot of territory. Um, if I could, uh, it, it depends 
So we're not going to get into controversy right now. We don't, we don't need that. But in this room, we could probably start dividing, you know, ideologies based on where you get your news. Okay, just for fun. Don't tell me where you get your news because it get it can divide real quick uh, in terms of, of how you handle it. But let's be honest. Uh, they've all got their spin, okay? And if you don't believe your news has got spin, you're crazy, okay? And they've all got spin. And I think the older I get, the more I realize how much spin there really is out there. But it's interesting as you watch it, whether you watch this newscast, you watch that newscast, whether you listen to this, you know, you know, this radio show or that radio show, whatever it is, everybody's got their perception of, of reality. And it, it's interesting. You can know, you say, hey, you know, your perception's true, but it's going to be true to you. What we've got right now that we've studied so far, and look at the last few verses as we finish chapter 1, going to chapter 2 is, that newscast is brought to you by the people of Israel. And that is their perspective on what took place. You know, we couldn't drive these guys out. We couldn't drive these. We didn't drive these out. It's their perspective on what took place. And right now, I want you to act like you just flipped the news channel real quick, and you flipped over to a channel that maybe you don't watch very often. And now you're going to get another absolute report. It's almost like if you're watching two identical decisions that came from, you know, the federal government. And you look at one channel, it's going to say this decision is the greatest thing since sliced bread. You're going to flip on another channel, they're going to say weeping and gnashing of teeth, we're all going to die. You know what I'm talking about? Just depends on which channel you watch. So what we've watched so far in the book of Judges is we've watched the channel unpack chapter one. And now we're about to turn the television right now and we're about to watch channel two and see what they have to say about this whole debacle we've seen of Israel. So let's jump into it. Judges chapter 2. And this channel uh, actually belongs to God. So it's the one that actually matters. So we covered a little bit of these uh, these first four, four verses, but we're going to go back through them and we're going to hit them again because we're going to look at a time when God speaks. And so tonight our goal, Jesus help us please, is to cover chapter 2 all the way through chapter 3, verse 6. And I know myself well enough, and I go on enough tangents that I doubt that I can do this. Here we go. It says, The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bokim. Anybody know what Bokim means? Talked about this last week? Weeping. Yeah, it does. It means weeping. Weeping. Okay? Gilgal, uh, does anybody remember why that's important or where it comes from? That would be Gilgal. Gogotha, Gogotha, but we're looking at a different name. This is Gilgal. Anybody know we talked about the city yesterday? Anybody remember what's important? Go, not Gogotha. What, what would Gilgal be? Take a guess, all right? If you're not sure, all we do is point and laugh if you're wrong. Okay, we're not going to do that in here, okay? Just have fun. Anybody like, I think I remember, yeah. My Bible gives me the answer. That's, hey, I'll take that. That's an open book quiz. <laughs> Place where Israel first became established. Alright, let's do that. It is. Place where Israel first became established. Uh, somebody turn real quick at your table and uh, let's have somebody look at Joshua chapter 5, verse 9. Somebody at your table read Joshua. I think I got the right one. Five nine. Make sure. I... Somebody read that at your table. 5 9. Joshua 5 9. Okay, everybody read that? Every table got that already? Somebody read Joshua 5 9. Here's what Gilgal means. Okay? We don't really get any more to what towns mean. Um, 
You know, it's hard for us in our culture, we move so fast to think about the importance of things. Um, right now, I have got hardcore jet lag. Uh, in order to make it back here to teach, I got up at 2.45 this morning to make it back here. So I'm drinking coffee, tea, keep the caffeine rolling. My brain is a little bit of mush, but I was in D.C. Uh, this, actually, I woke up in, in Washington, D.C. this morning. Uh, we landed there on Monday, I guess. Yeah, Monday night we landed. First thing we did, we got there. We knew our meetings we got were all day Tuesday, but they were important enough meetings. I took, could not run the risk of a flight not making it. So it was like, we're going to fly the night before, we're going to get there, we're going to get a hotel. So we got all Monday night, just, well, not all Monday night, you know, a few hours Monday night, just to kind of mess around and hang out in, in Washington, D.C. So uh, I needed to get a little exercise in, and so I said, here's our goal. We're going to hit every single monument. Ready? Go. And so we just took off walking, man. And we ended up putting in 10 miles. You know, we walked, you know, to the Washington. And uh, and then, you know, of course, I'm just thinking about man, what that history means. And I go to World War II, just overwhelmed at the World War II War. Overwhelmed there. Uh, you know, just, 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 if you've not been to see the World War II Memorial, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh, from there, we, you know, we went over and we walked up and around and uh, checked out the Lincoln Memorial. And I start thinking, I'm looking at the, you know, the water spread up front of it. We cut over and we go by, you know, the Vietnam Memorial and, and just these list of names and what it meant. And again, just my heart welling up. I'm just thinking of, of the story that, that each letter and each name, what it means, who it was, what was their story, what happened, and how it affected their families. And, you know, I'm just, I'm a softie. I feel tears well in my eyes as I'm walking by this black wall. And just thinking, man, what, what that meant for our nation, the story that it told, you know, the agony and, and, and honestly the, the pain we still carry from that. You know, rounded that, walked over and, uh, and saw a memorial never seen. I never had the opportunity to see the, the Korean, uh, for the Korean conflict. Call it conflict all you want, man. That, that was a vicious war that our country doesn't talk enough about in terms of loss of human life and you know, wounded and missing. And, Probably one of the most moving wars I've ever seen. I, I, I never had a chance. If you've seen the Korean conflict memorial, it is. Who's seen that? Wow. Spectacular. Just spectacular the way they built that. And then from there, we rounded it. We head over, and the, the new Martin Luther King Memorial. I hadn't seen that one, so we checked it out. Walked through, and I, uh, I got to see FDR. And again, his memorial. And thinking about how long he was in office, how many different things he saw, his reflection on war, some of the stuff that was going on with the Great Depression and poverty, and all things that hit during that time. And then finally, we rounded all the way around, finished up for 10 miles, and walked into, you know, the Jefferson Memorial. And recognizing the way so much of our history has been just turned, and how so many things we hear about Jefferson, all the negative things, but also looking at his own writings, and wondering, man, I truly wonder, where was this guy in his understanding of who Jesus was, who God was? His writings are so articulate as they're engraved on the wall. My mind's just, it's just torn. Then finally, we're off 10, mil, 10 miles by eating a big meal. But it was awesome. So right now, looking at it, we just don't get a place where we set up a lot of memorials anymore, where we set up, we consecrate places. For me, I consecrate places a lot. I like that Old Testament principle. Uh, I could take you to a place if I couldn't find it anymore, but I could, I could maybe find a place in Seattle where I went to really wrestle with God over an issue, and uh, I remember being on this river and building these stones of remembrance. On my phone, I could pull up a GPS place where I've got another set of stones and remembrance that are built on Tate Rock Lake when we decided we were going to adopt our son. You know, I could take you into Alaska where I built two stones of remembrance for my boys, talking about this great journey they're taking from being boys to men. That's not, don't mean the music group, so we eventually understand what that means. 
but going from childhood to manhood and welcome to on this journey. So there's stones remembrance there, and I've got, you know, you walk to my house, and I can, well, not to my house, outside of my yard, there's, there's different stones. There's one from New Mexico, my first father-son trip with Justin, and here's one from Taylor Rock Lake that represents Silas. When you look at Gilgal, it's kind of like the whole issue of Hebron. This place is important. When God says he showed up at Gilgal, he's sending a message. He could have shown up in any town he wanted to, but he showed up at Gilgal. Because Gilgal, somebody read out 5-9 real quick, out loud. The last time we know about Gilgal, here's what goes down. Somebody read that out loud for me? Joshua 5-9, what we just read. Anybody still got it? Read it out loud. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, so the place has been called Gilgal in this day. Rolled away the reproach of Egypt. Wow. And that... Gilgal means to roll away. It means to roll. That's what that town means. Now let's go back all of a sudden. Remember, last time they see an angel of the Lord at Gilgal, this angel showing up to say, you're free. Take the land. It's all yours. The last time the angel shows up, Gilgal is a place where like, I roll back reproach. You're a free nation. You're a free people. You're my people. Go take it. The land is yours. Go, 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 go. And the next time he shows up at Gilgal, it is not. It's the same God, but a completely different message. Because now he's not rolling back, he's rolling on something. <coughs> he rolled back reproach in Joshua. He rolled back on reproach right now in Gilgal. And so when I don't know how God says, meet me here. I don't know, you know, I'm sure he doesn't text or tweet at that point. I don't know if it's a pillar of fire. I don't know what he does to get all these people gathered in Gilgal. I don't know what he does. He sounds a trumpet and they just know, show up. For some way, somehow, the message says, meet me at Gilgal. And he shows up. Verse 2, it says, the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And he talked to him and he says, so he starts one place. He takes him a place of being rolled back and he takes him to a place of weeping. Do you see it? He takes him a place where reproach was gone. And he takes him to a place of pain. And he says, I brought you up out of Egypt and I led you to the land. I swore to give you forefathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land. But you should break down their altars. Let's just stop there for just a second. We get into this issue, and we were talking about this last week up here. Zach and I were having this conversation. Whenever we look at this topic, we heard they had iron chariots. You remember what they said? We could not get rid of them. Remember that in chapter 1? Look at chapter 1, verse 19. Somebody got that? Read it out loud. Chapter 1, 19. Now the Lord was with Judah, and they took possession of the hill country, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. All right, now here's the view. That is channel one. That's their spin of what took place. Now we flip to channel two, and God starts saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Time out. You said you could not? The issue is not that you could not. God shows up now and says, that's your spin. That's what you're saying. You tell me you could not, I tell you you would not. You saw iron chairs. Do you not? What does he reference? If you look at it, what does he reference just before that? Before he says this. He says, I brought you up out of Egypt. Immediately. Immediately. What's one of the first things that comes to your mind when he's bringing them up out of Egypt? Chariots. What's something else you picture? Sea being parted. Dry land. And he said, you're telling me that you couldn't take 
out the guys of iron chariots. Do you not remember that I'm the God that crushed Pharaoh? Do you not remember what I did with plagues? Do you not what I did, remember what I did when I opened the sea and I swallowed them all up? It's not an issue of you could not. It's an issue of you would not. You did not trust me. Now, before I start beating up on these judges, these guys and judges, I know my own life, sometimes I have a hard time differentiating between could not and would not when it comes to my relationship with Father and the things he tells me to do. Oh, man, God, I, I, don't, I don't think I can do that. Oh, really? Where is your trust in me, Jason? Well, God, I think you're telling me to do this, but man, I, I can't. I can't do that. It's interesting that in this moment, God really draws a line. He says it's not an issue of could not. It's an issue of would not. And the word he used right here, we're going to camp out here in a little bit, is he says, uh, where he says, yet you have disobeyed me. You've disobeyed me. Um, when this angel shows himself, he's bringing judgment because they broke the covenant. We're going to look at a few verses right now. Um, Look at, uh, with me, Exodus. Turn back to Exodus real quick. 23, or 24, my bad. i got to hurry. I don't have time to hit all these. We're going to do it anyway. Exodus 24, it's too important. Twenty-four. We're going to look at verses. Where's verse seven at? Where am I at? Hold on a second. I got to find it here. It says then he took the book of the law, uh, the book of the covenant, verse seven, and he read to the people, and they responded, "We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey." There's this moment when he takes them in to be their people, and they make this. You know, Mosaic Covenant. They make this covenant before the Father right there that says, whatever He tells us to do, God, we're going to do. And God says, take the land, and they said, we can't. And the, the ultimate thing is, it's not an issue you can, it's an issue you can't. Hey, how many of you guys in this room have children? How many of you have seen your children struggle with the concept of can versus won't? Amen. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, I couldn't clean my room because of this, that, and the other. No, 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 no. The issue is not that you couldn't. The issue is that you wouldn't. Okay. Well, you know, I was going to do that, but, you know, I can't right now. No, no, time out. The issue isn't that you can't. The issue is that you won't. Do you understand that? For guys have kids, there's a difference, isn't there, between can't and won't. That's one of those moments right now where God the Father looks and says, stop this stuff. Stop the spin. Stop all the junk. Stop all of it. The issue is that you can't. The issue is you won't. I promise to be with you. I promise to give you the land. You saw iron chariots. You took your eyes off a God who could destroy chariots. You missed it. You stopped looking. You looked at the wrong thing. So, let's go back into Judges chapter 2. Let's keep going. He says, verse 2, he says, you have disobeyed. Okay, I want to I get into this real quick. Um, this issue of driving out people is vicious. Uh, I want you to know that this military campaign is not what you see happening right now in places like Syria. This is not, it's not what you see happening with, with ISIS, you know, in Iraq. This is not ethnic cleansing. Okay? Well, you know, how do you know it's not at the clinic? Well, man, you look at it. Rahab was not a believer, and they allowed her and her whole family to stay. You can look at it. Moses' father-in-law was not, I should say a believer, was an Israelite. <sighs> My mind flips into that Christian mode too quick. You know, Moses and his father and his father's uh, family, they, they were Kenites. They were not Israelites, and they let them stay. It's not that they're just trying to wipe out and do some big ethnic cleansing. It's also not some sort of, of like an imperialistic conquest. Okay, whenever we take over um, a nation or country, 
you know, not, not today when I live this way, but back in the old days, when you took over a nation, a country, what did you do? Whatever resources they had became yours. The people became subject to you. And I know it doesn't work that way today, but this isn't, because what's the first thing, you know, you think if you, one of the things we've heard, I have to be careful, I don't want to get into politics, it's not my intent. Let's just stay away from that. Move on, move on. Um, when we conquer a country, we conquer a nation, we usually think those resources are going to be ours. And so sometimes we can look at a country, and if you look at what you know, Spain would have done a long time ago, or you look at you know, what, some of what the French or the English would have done, and I don't mean today, I mean two, three, four, five hundred years ago. They would look at a country, they look at the natural resources, they'd walk in, they would take said country because of all the plunder came where? Yeah, came back home. We get to fill our coffers. We get to get all the stuff. That's not what's happening here. How do we know that? Because the first thing God tells us is that when you conquer people, you don't keep anything. You destroy it all. In fact, one of the whole issues you find you know, in the book of Joshua is when they conquer a town and they try to keep some of the stuff back for themselves and then they lose the next several battles. God says when you take a place, you don't keep anything. You destroy it all. Utterly destroy it all. He did not want it to become about some sort of imperialistic conquest of them getting rich. Them just choosing, we'll wipe them out just so we can get their stuff. We'll let these people stay. He said, no, wipe it all out and don't keep a thing. They were supposed to keep any slaves. They were supposed to keep even a little piece of gold. They were supposed to keep a single of the animal. Everything needed to go. And then what God would have hoped is that in this moment, when they start driving these people out, everyone else in Canaan would have gotten the message, we better leave now. We better just leave because the Israelites are going to destroy everything. What happens is, Here's a difficult thing. When you do half-hearted work at war, your enemy figures that out. They figure out, well, sometimes they drive these people out, but they don't really drive these people out. They start marrying and hanging out with them. So, ah, they're soft. They're not going to do anything. And then all of a sudden, the Israelites' voice in war just didn't mean it anymore. Because they knew, you know what, the Israelites won't really finish the job. I mean, yeah, they'll show up. They'll make a big deal of it. They'll rattle sabers for a while. But we know if we just kind of hang out and fight them long enough, they'll quit. They'll give up. They'll walk away. And that's what's happening right now. Why did God want them to drive them out? It's not at the cleansing. He let other people stay. Why do you want to drive them out? It, it's not some imperialistic conquest of take all of our stuff and get rich. No, it's not that. He didn't want to take them slaves so they could do what they did, you know, to what they had done to them in Egypt. It comes down to one word. God wanted the idols gone. All of the false gods had to be out. God's soul wasn't even so much on the individuals as much as it was on the religion. I have got to get every one of these false gods out of here. I know they will entirely corrupt. I know these idols are going to turn them away. Therefore, get them all out of here. From that border to this border, from north to south, east to west, there can't be an idol left. There can't be anybody worse than false god left. It's got to be pure. Because God says, you've got to be wholly devoted to me. And he knew if he left one speck, he knew these stiff-necked people and their weakness. He knew what happened whenever he went up and he beat with Moses on the side of the mountain and Aaron's down here building a dead blasted iron calf for crying out loud. He knew the weakness. He says, you've got to get them all out. All the idols have to be gone. All right, let's keep going. We talked about the camp versus thing. Uh, I'm not going to live in that too much longer, uh, but I want to hit one last thing. I want to talk about three places. And in fact, if you don't have two books I want to recommend to you tonight, we'll do one right now. Keller's got a good read on this. We're going to hit some stuff from Keller, and a lot of it you can just read on your own. If you don't have this, I'd encourage you to pick it up. It's a great read, especially on this topic. Ooh, he nails this. He nails this. I'd encourage you guys to grab this. Uh, we're going to follow 
His outline table of contents will be the order of our class. We're going to hit a lot of the stuff that he doesn't necessarily get into. But he does hit three areas that I want to camp out in real quick on this I can't versus I won't. Three areas we tend to struggle with that. Number one is forgiveness. We can be just like the Israelites when it comes to forgiveness, when it comes to I can't versus I won't. Think about that one. Where do you still harbor bitterness? And we say, well, I can't forgive because of what they've done. You know, you look at Matthew 18.35 and it's pretty clear on how we handle the issue of forgiveness. Is it an issue of I can't or an issue of I won't? I can tell you this, in the same way the Lord commanded the Israelites to take the land, He has commanded each and every one of us to forgive. And so if you hold unforgiveness in your heart, I promise you, before holy God, that is a dangerous thing to hold on to. That is not something He looks on with pleasure. If you hold bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart, you're no different than the Israelites. I'm no different than the Israelites. And usually it's not an issue of I can, it's an issue of I won't. And honestly, in the same way, in the same way that the Israelites are held slave to the people they won't drive out, unforgiveness does the same thing to our heart. It holds a slave and hostage. Every time we see that person, we're bitter. We carry this weight of anger. We carry this weight of angst. We see them, we want to walk the other way. They're in the room, and we just feel our countenance begin to change. We hear their voice, and it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. It eats us alive. Matthew 18, 35 is really clear. Forgiveness, we are mandated to forgive. In the same way that they have a covenant we made with God, we have a testament covenant with the Father, that we are a forgiven people who are also a forgiving people. Number two, another place this happens a lot, and uh, this happens a lot in the area of truth-telling. We feel like we just can't tell people the truth about whether it be something we see in their lives, whether it be uh, an issue we've got with them, a struggle we've got with them, and sometimes it's not an issue if I can, but it's an issue if I won't. And uh, in Ephesians, we're going to write this down, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 and verse 25 are key on that. Um, You know, what it really means, we think that, you know, if I tell him that or I tell her that, they may not like me anymore. Or it may cause friction in our relationship. And I, I think the key on that is to always speak truth in love. But that's another area we struggle. And, you know, sometimes we struggle that with our, our kids. We struggle that with our parents. We struggle that with brothers and sisters. Family members are the toughest with me. Uh, man, I had a I can't versus I won't moment with my older brother won't go into that because it's one of the least Christ-like moments in my life. Uh, but uh, I finally had a moment where I had to just tell him the truth. And uh, growing up early on in my early days, uh, maybe some of you guys might identify with this. My early formative years were not in a Christian home. And while Jesus has redeemed my life, it redeemed so many parts of my character, good night. There are days where I'm like, wow, that came back fast. Like, whoo! Like lightning, like man, the words are right back just like the old days. Like, whoo. It's like I'll try to be in the word, I'll be doing well, and then all of a sudden you get that issue that's a flashpoint for you. And and maybe you're like, well, Jason, no, I don't ever struggle with that. Awesome. I do. Uh, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I'm on my on the phone with my brother, you know, just having we'll just say words that were not edifying or Christ-like. I'm not talking about words that are destructive, I'm talking about words that are hope healing. And speaking truth and love. I, I didn't do that. Um, yeah, we'll move on. Third way he gets into it is, uh, is temptation. Where you think, man, I cannot resist doing this. I can't quit doing it. And again, it's not usually an issue of I can't. It's an issue of I won't. 
Uh, another great one on that one, if you want to look at it, it is at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Uh, trying to remember that, I wrote it down. Uh, no temptations overtaking you. Is that the right one? Except what's common to man. God's faithful. He'll give you an escape route. He'll give you a way out. Uh, and, and I love teaching students that. I love teaching adults that. Man, every time God's trying to give you, when temptations come, He is always trying to give you an escape route. He's trying to give you a way out of it. And then I'd strongly encourage you to say, Father, is this an issue if I can't resist this temptation or an issue if I won't? All right, let's move on. Judges, step two, verse three. Here we go. We start to get some controversy here in a second. Uh, where are we at? It says, now, now, therefore, I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. There will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will snare you. This is where it starts getting tricky. Um, how do you define what idolatry is? Let's just go around your tables, and if you could muster a definition of what idolatry is, what, what do you think of? Okay, go talk about it for just a minute. Try to figure out, what's that, what is idolatry? What is it? Kind of got it? Get some ideas? In Keller's book, I, I'm going to quote him directly because I feel like he nails this definition. He says, idolatry is making a good aspect of creation, marriage, mountains, business, and so on, into the ultimate source of security, identity, and power. Let me read that again. Idolatry is making a good aspect of creation. Not a bad thing. Even a good aspect of creation. Marriage, mountains, business, and so on into the ultimate source of security, identity, and power. They have a different form of idolatry. I can tell you that for us, as an American people, I think Paul would resonate with us, and he would identify spot on what our typical, I'm not saying it's yours, our collectively, but also generalizing, our typical form of idolatry is found in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. That's our typical form of idolatry. Do you want to read that? Colossians 3.5. This is this hits us right between the eyes. I say us, I don't say you. Okay? Because I don't know, I don't know you long enough to know what, what you struggle with. So just generalize this on the American people. What does our idolatry look like? Theirs was Baal and Asher. We'll talk about that here in a second. I think Paul nails us. What is it? Somebody might read Colossians 3.5 out loud. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. I think that last one, greed, is what gets us, man. This constant pursuit for more. Never truly able to be satisfied. I mean, I look at it saying, you know, most of us, if, if I could go back and talk to the 14-year-old you and tell you the amount of money you make, and say, no, I wouldn't make that. But if I could talk to the 14-year-old you and say, you're going to make this much money someday. like Or the 12-year-old you, you'd be like, what? I'm going to have how much? Are you kidding me? And the crazy thing is, if you realize that you roll back to when you're 18, you know, or however old you were when you got your first job, or you know, maybe you went to the for, you know, workforce right out of high school, maybe you went to college, I don't know. But all of a sudden, you got the salary, and you thought, you know what? If I could ever get to the point where I had $5,000 more in that, I'm going to be okay. 
And if you ever notice, it always is like, I need five or ten more. I just need five or ten more. If we just had just a little bit more. And the issue is, what, when will that ever, ever, ever be enough? It, it never seems to arrive in this place. And some of you are like, well, actually, I've arrived in that place. Awesome. I think for most of us in the room, it's like this constant pursuit of, like, just, just a tiny bit more, and we feel comfortable. You know, we, we feel secure. And I'm like, I, I don't know. It's like this illusion. You can't, or mirage. You can't ever seem to catch up to it. Or it's like, you know, you want to celebrate, you know, when I think of a high jumper, and they jump over the bar, and then what's the next thing they do as soon as you clear that bar? You raise it. And you're like, are you kidding me? And you can't even celebrate it. You know, I was, uh, who was I talking to? Oh, I was, I was talking to Coach Smith. He uh, travels with me. You know, if you know Mike Smith, he coaches the, the defense coordinator for, uh, for Web City, and he travels with me in the summer for about three weeks, just help me run events for high school students. And uh, we had a real candid conversation one time about one of the most depressing moments uh, that he has. And he says, honestly, it's just a little bit after the football game when we win a state championship. He says, we've known more than won that championship and got our pictures taken than somebody will walk up and say, hey, you ready for your next one? And he's like, are you kidding me? We can't even celebrate this. So greed doesn't have to play out in money. It can play out in accomplishments. It can play out in accolades. It can play out in a lot of different ways. But greed tends to be our number one idol. Most of us don't have the bail or ashes. We'll get out of here in a second. Um, let's talk about a dilemma right now um, and this tension. All right. So in verse 1, God says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, and I led you into the land that I swore to give your forefathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Does that sound like a promise to you? It sounds like a promise to me. How in the world do we take verse 1 and justify that next to verse 3? Now therefore I tell you that I will not drive them out before you, that we throw into your sides, and their gods will be snared to you. I'm going to drive them out, I'll never, I promise. Verse 1. Verse 3 is, I'm not going to drive them out. That's attention, isn't it? How does God stay faithful to his word and giving his people what he promised? I mean, some of us, we know what it's like to promise something to our kids, and we will move heaven and earth to live up to our word and give them what we said we'd do. You know, I know some of you guys have probably worked two, three, four jobs. You've stayed up late. The things you will do for your kids when you've told them you'll do it. I mean, we could probably tell story after story in this room of you going without or of your parents going without so they could provide you what they said they were going to do. I'm just over. And here God the Father says, I'm going to give you a land. I promise. It's called the what kind of land? Promise land, for crying out loud. It's the land of promise. I'm going to give it to you. It's going to be yours. You know, and I promise I'm going to leave before you. I promise you're going to drive them out. I'm going to be with you as you drive them out. And then all of a sudden, we get to verse 3, and he says this. Now, therefore, I tell you, I will not drive them out before you. You feel the tension? He's got to be incredibly faithful. But how do you remain faithful to people who are so stiff-necked and wrong? How do you stay faithful to people that just are downright evil? How does he stay faithful in promising to give them a land? But at the same time, he's also a holy God that wants no divided allegiance. Do you see the tough spot God's in right now? Can you imagine being in that place where you're like, I mean, I'm not God, so I don't, I don't want to suppose I am, but I'm looking at it going, 
How do I handle this? I promised to get in the land. I promised that I would be with them. Yet, they turn on me. They forsake me. They don't do what I tell them to do. They don't even trust me. They don't even worship me right now. I, I should just completely obliterate them and turn my back on them. I can drive these people out. But then if I do that, then I'm a liar. Because I said I promised to be faithful. But I also told them they weren't faithful that I wouldn't drive them out. It's just this back and forth tension. And that is judges. It's a tension that God lives in between being utterly faithful and completely holy. I think God's saying, you've put me in an impossible situation. I have a I promise to bless you. How does he solve the dilemma? Let's talk about that for a second. How does God solve the dilemma? Feedback. He gave him the land. Yeah. But now, he promises not, now he promises not to drive him out. He said he would. He said he would, and he says he won't. Yeah, we still get your land. I think, I think he, he just removed his protection. He kept his covenant, but he removed his protection. It's kind of like a parent letting a child learn the consequences of life. He taught him, he spoke to him, they still keep making the choices, and then just, you pull back and let him suffer some of those consequences and realize, ouch. That's not what, every time he gave him a judge, they, they, they responded, they came back, and then when the judge was down, they went back to doing it's not going to do. Yeah. Anybody else? Can you imagine being in that place? You ever been in that place as a parent? Where you promise a kid something and they do something completely stupid? And now you're like, how am I supposed to handle this? Like, I was going to do this for you, had it all ready for you, and now you've done this? Like, I was going to bless you? And now I find out this about you? Are you kidding me? Like, I, huh? Tough luck, yeah. And that's the beauty of it, is that's exactly how I feel. It's exactly how I feel at times. But I'm also, at the same time, gracious that God doesn't say that to us. You know what I mean? Because I know at times I promise to pledge my heart to Him, and then I found myself riddled with sin by the things I say on the phone to my brother. Promise to be faithful, and then find myself dabbling in sin that I don't need to be dabbling in thinking thoughts, saying things I don't need to be saying. I promise to be holy and righteous, and then I find out a real glimpse of my heart. Anybody here ever find themselves having a much darker heart than you'd ever like to admit? Yeah. yeah. That stinks, man. We're going to look at some, some text here, here in a second that get really... I'm going to look at a couple verses. At your tables, look at um, Exodus 34, 6-7. I'll read it. Exodus 34, 6-7. We're going to look at a few verses real quick. How in the world I'm ever going to get through 3 verse 6? We haven't even got to chapter verse 3 yet. Exodus 34. I think this tension is important. Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Here's what it says. I'm going to find it here. It says, As he passed in front of Moses. Look at her on yet. As he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Wow. He flipped that quick, didn't he? Usually we just want to read and write worship songs about the first half. <laughs> you know, every worship song is about he's slow to anger, he's abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands. When's the last time you ever you know, sing a worship song that says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished? Usually, usually it doesn't make like, 
Yeah, the old like hymns we you know sing like verses one, two, three, you know, one, two, and four. Verse usually three was that was that one. <laughs> Skip over that one. It says he you know, he punished children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Whoa! Where does this whole thing about compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, punishing the kids to the third and fourth generation? That's attention. Look right now with me to the book of Hosea. Another great one. Hosea. We're going to look at chapter 1. We're going to read a few verses here. Um, who here is not familiar with Hosea? Not familiar with Hosea? Raise your hand up. Okay. <laughs> Hosea? Whew. Who here's read Hosea? You think you kind of remember a little bit about it? Hosea is rough. Here's the end of the deal. God is trying to show his faithfulness to a very unfaithful people. So God says, Hosea, i got to prove a point. Okay? I need you to go marry a very unfaithful prostitute woman. That's what she is. If you're offended by that, take it up with God, not with me. Hosea has to marry a woman who is beyond promiscuous. She is full-on, will be with anybody who wants to be with her, uh, and in fact ends up as willing sex slave. It doesn't even live with Hosea anymore. And God says, that's what Israel's like. That's what Israel's like. You know, her name is Gomer. So, you know, when was the last time you ever met somebody named Gomer? Uh, it should tell you something about her. So here we go. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, verse 1, son of Bariah, during the reigns of... Uh, yeah, skip on down. Verse 2. Uh, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go take yourself an adulterous wife. Now think about that. Can you imagine if God told you, Go marry an adulterous wife? Can you imagine what Hosea's friends thought? Like, wow, Hosea, you got a winner. Good job there, buddy. Woo, got yourself Gomer. Whoa. Can you imagine you brought her home to mom and dad? You know, it's like, oh, wow. Everybody knows her. Nice one there, bud. Great, great. Dowry won't be expensive. That's the good news. And he says, Go take yourself an adulterous wife, children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery, and departed from the Lord. So he married Gomer, the daughter. Feel sorry for this guy. Only time his name ever gets listed in Scripture. Here it is, Deblium. And she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel. Uh, because I will soon punish the house of Jacob for the massacre of Jezreel, and I'll put to an end of the kingdom of Israel. And that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again, may or may not have been Hosea's child, and gave birth to a daughter. The Lord named her, call her Lorumah, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel, uh, that I should forgive them. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses or horsemen, but by the Lord their God. So after she had weaned Laruma, Gomer had another son. And the Lord said, call him Luamai, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Whew. First of all, imagine being the kid. That's your name. Hello. First hit, first grade. What's your name? My name is, I'm not your people, and you're, I'm not your God. <laughs> How do you write that down at the top of your paper? Um, yet the Israelites will be like sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted, and a place where it's said to them, you are, you are not my people. They will be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be, will be reunited, and they will appoint one leader that will come up out of the land, for great uh, will be the day of Jezreel. So anyway, as you see, there's this tension that God's in. 
this tension that he lives in. Go back to let's get back into uh, into Judges. Um, this tension doesn't just happen in the Old Testament. This tension happens to us. I mean, here's the honest truth: we are a messed up people. You know, in this room, I have no doubt that we've got people that you. The last thing you'd ever want to do on the face of the planet is stand in front of this group of people and tell the dark moments of your story. We want to do it. We can come in this room and think everybody's great, everybody's awesome, but in this room there are stories. I know the last thing I'd want to do is sit here and start unpacking all my darkest sin. I don't want to do that. A bad day. Bad day. I got no desire to do that. I know who I am. I know the struggles I've had. I know the dumb things I've done. And, and maybe some of you have lived an entire life just doing nothing but holy, glorious, perfect things. And that's I'm, I'm being honored. But honestly, that's great. I, I would want that for my children. But I imagine a lot of us in this room, anybody ever just done, you know, you just bought yourself a big old case of stupid? Anybody besides me ever just like, what was I thinking? Stupid. I was dumb. I was dumb. Here's the truth of the matter. Does God punish these people? Or does he keep his promise? Does he punish them? Or keep his promise? The truth of the matter is, we find this solved. I want you guys to look at your tables. Look up 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And just read that out loud. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And then we're going to start moving a lot faster than I'm going now. Ooh. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Somebody read that out loud. God made him who had no sin to be sent for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Alright, read that out loud again. Listen. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. One more time. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God does punish for sin. And your punishment and my punishment was not placed on me. It was placed on Jesus at the cross. And where this tension becomes so beautiful and where this tension becomes so powerful is when we have this realization that we are the people of judges. We are idolaters. We are sinners. We are people who have turned our backs on the Holy God. We're people who, who may have been baptized, promised to live holy lives, and we know we flat out didn't. And in that moment, he says, my punishment and wrath has to be I have to be, remain true to who I am as a holy God. And I must punish sin for what it is. But I also am going to be a faithful God. And I've got my provision for promise. So in that moment, what He does to Jesus on the cross, and you wonder why He screams, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because He's the same God that's true in Exodus, as the same God that's true in Hosea, as the same God who's true in Judges chapter 2. He says, I will punish the people for their sin. And in that moment, it's all your sin, my sin, is nailed to Jesus on that cross. That's what the blood is about. That's what the crown is about. That's what the pain is about. Is that He took everything that you've done, everything that I've done, all of our idolatry, all of our greed, all of our lust, all of our stupidity, and He... He laid it on the sun and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, the tension of judges is united. He is holy. He is faithful. He is holy. And he is faithful. And God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, 
so that we might become the righteousness of God. Does that make sense? Track it with me? What a beautiful message. Judges is not about Israel. Judges tells us all about Jesus. And there is one judge who's coming, and his name is not Othniel. His name is not Enoch. His name is not Deborah. His name is not Samson or Gideon. His name is Jesus. And through that righteous judge, the impunity, the punishment, is taken in the promised land. Has been and will be delivered. Does that make sense? All right. Move on. Okay. I get excited about stuff. Let's go. Here we go. Judges chapter 2. Let's kick it to verse 6. Here we go. Um... It says, after Joshua dismissed the Israelites, <clears throat> they went to take possession of the land, each of their own inheritance. And we know what happens. We've already read that through the spin in chapter 1. Now the news reports give the same thing. He says, the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of inheritance at Timnaharis, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gesh. It says, verse 10. Here we go. This is where it starts getting fun again. Verse 10. It says, after that, a whole generation had gathered to their fathers. And another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. What's the opposite of love? I think so. Apathy. I think that's it. Can you imagine standing at the cross and having any emotion? You, you may hate Jesus for who he is if you're a Roman or if you are a Jew. You may detest him and deflect that emotion onto him. You may love him because you knew him as God, you knew him as Lord, you knew him as the Son of God. But can you imagine standing at the cross and just not caring? You can imagine that, that concept. And really the opposite of love really comes down to apathy, which is not, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. You think about it, usually when you are so ticked off and you're saying words like, oh, I hate them, usually it's because there's a fracture and a deep, important relationship to you. You know? Something that hurts. Whereas somebody else can offend you, and you just don't care. <laughs> Whatever, man. I don't even know who you are. I'll never see you again, I just don't give a rip, and you don't think about it anymore. But somebody who's close to you, man, it's because that hate is, hate is actually almost just a subset of love in a, in a distorted way. Apathy. Apathy is just we, don't, we just don't care. And that's what you find here. I want you to dialogue what this, if you agree or disagree with this phrase, I'm going to give it to you. God has children, but he has no grandchildren. What do you think that means? God has children, but he has no grandchildren. Talk about that for a second. What does that mean? God has children, but he has no grandchildren. Agree? Disagree? Confused by it? Or yeah, I think I get it. Talk about that just for a couple minutes. Father to all. Yep, father to all. 
Sometimes there's this tension where, uh, man, I've been doing student ministry most of my life, and I'll meet parents who are on fire for Jesus, on fire for the Lord. And a lot of times that baton doesn't always get passed to the next generation. That they think that parents, that their contagion for Jesus, their love for Him, is going to somehow miraculously get passed on to the next generation. And if some of you in this room, that maybe you're old enough, you've been around the block a few times, you've seen this, that you may have grandparents who are deeply committed to the Father and all of a sudden find that the parents kind of drift off and the grandchildren don't really have anything to do with God anymore. And we come to this point where God has children, He has no grandchildren. And, and one of the things that happens is the Israelites do an absolutely terrible job at passing off and letting... Faith can only be first generation. There's no such thing as a second generation Christian. It does not exist. There are only first generation believers. You cannot find salvation. You cannot find a relationship with Jesus. The only, there's only one mediator between God and man. That's a man, Christ Jesus. Our faith doesn't come through, you know, and I know that, you know, Timothy reflects on the, you know, the faith of his grandmother Lois, but what you only understand is that was Timothy's faith. It became his. He owned it. And what happens in this place is they don't pass on those lineage of faith to the next generation. And apathy ensues. Ah, he just becomes another god among any other gods. He's just one of the others. And so another generation grows up. And so that's why one of the things I pound on is I'll hear people say about young students is that, man, you know what? You know, they're the, they're the future of the church. You know, that's the church of tomorrow. There is no church of tomorrow. There's only a church of today. Whatever somebody's a believer, they are the church of today, no matter what their age. And I tell people, man, if you work with kids, don't ever tell them that. Never tell them they're the church of tomorrow. No, their faith is here. It's alive. It's active. And God can work through a 16-year-old just as powerful and even most sometimes even more powerful than he can work through, through us when we get to 40s, 50s, and 60s. And, and one thing I encourage you to always recognize, as parents, as grandparents, make sure when you work with those kids, those grandkids, it is first-generation faith. Make sure they have owned it. Make sure that you've not just passed on and I know we talk about, you know, you know, Deuteronomy is very clear about when you rise, when you walk, when you lie down, all of this. At the end of the day, what he's really trying to get at is that you've got to make sure you give this to them. Make sure you impart this in them. And they didn't do that here. Another generation grew up, and they didn't even really know who God was. And uh, it's tragic. So let's get it real quick. Uh, I mean, when it says that they did not know, understand, it's not like mental knowledge. I think it's verse 10. Where is it? Verse 10 of Judges 2. You've got to find this. It says, whole generation um, gathered a father. There's an generation group who knew neither the Lord nor, nor what he had done for Israel. Um, this word know is uh, interesting. Um, because I can see somebody, like, if I bump into you and we kind of know each other because we've been in this class together, but we don't really know each other. I mean, you... You know, I've been over to my house. We've not had dinner several times. We've gone on vacation together. You know, we've not had, from, in my case, a couple of good belly laughs. We've just cracked up laughing. We've got no shared stories. Does it make sense? Like, yeah, I, mean, I, I know him. I recognize him. The issue of no is a deeper knowledge. They didn't have a deeper knowledge of God. I mean, they knew his name, Elohim. They knew him in terms of, like, they'd heard, heard the stories, but they didn't know him. That's what I'm getting at with this first-generation faith. It's not that, well, there had been no Bible lesson, no Sunday school. No, 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 no. They didn't know it intimately. All right, let's move on. Judges chapter 2, verse 11. Here's what you find happens. It says this. It says, Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served Baals. Uh, 
Verse uh, 12 says, They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped the various gods of the people around them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. Now we're going to get into a little bit of some racy stuff here in a second. This issue of Baals. Baals and Asherah are the two people we're talking, two gods, false gods we're talking about. Anyone know anything about Baal? Know anything about him? Yeah, storm, rains, what else do you know? Crops. Okay? Think about it. If you're living in this agrarian society and you need your grass to grow so you can feed your cattle, you need rain to come so you can water the cattle, you know, you need the crops you planted to grow, you begin worshiping, you know, this God of the sun, this God that brings rain, the God that brings weather, the God that brings, you know, you know fertility to creation itself. That's going to be one of the things that you will worship. So that's what Baal is. Then you've got Asher. Anybody know anything about her? She'd be like the sister wife to Baal. You know about her? Alright. This one, we're all adults here, right? Alright? Can I just go there real quick? We're not going to be too embarrassed, we're not going to blush. Okay, here we go. Um, what do you, Asherah typically, and I, and I confirm this with my, my good buddy Chad Ragsdale, because I said, Chad, I've taught this a thousand times, this is what I always say, is this accurate? Chad's like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's a professor or whatever, he's like, hey, yeah, yeah, that's right. Asherah was a pole. That they would have worshipped. A what? A pole? P O L E. That would have been in the shape of a phallic symbol. She was a god of fertility. We're all adults here, we can handle this stuff. He's like, oh, wow. <laughs> They're worshipping and bowing down to something that is shaped. You guys are adults. I'm not trying to do shock value. This is what it was in the shape of, 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 uh, of, of, a, of a male genitalia. We'll say it that way. That's what an Asherah pole was. So we all blush on like, whoa. Never coming to judges again. <laughs> Think about if you're God. You're Jehovah. You're bowing down to that. Are you kidding me? You're bowing down to this. You're bowing down to something that represents sex. We would never do that, would we? We'd never worship sex as a culture, would we? Now, surely we would never idolize sex as a culture. These backwoods crazy people bowing down to a phallic symbol pole, we're not that dumb. Are we? Anybody looked at TV lately? Anybody looked at a Carl's Jr. commercial for crying out loud? Good night. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. It's like, good grief. You know, it's funny. It's like any time that the Victoria's Secret commercial comes on, my daughter thankfully goes, ah, she screams. All the guys hit the deck. It's like, watch. You know, it's like, don't look, don't look. And you don't get, usually don't get a warning. You're like sitting there watching football. Wow, man, good night. We're not much different. We worship sex as well. It's something we struggle with. But that's what it looked like. That's what it would have been. And uh, it's it's crazy. Um, we're gonna, and that's only the first part of the reasons. We're going to look at what God says about that, and it's pretty pretty bold. Um, couple things. Um, you can look at it. A couple of, couple of scriptures I want you to look at. Somebody look up Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through nine. Deuteronomy six four through nine. Somebody read that out loud real quick, and then hold on to Deuteronomy six. Who's got it for me? Deuteronomy six four to nine. Which sound I got? <laughs> Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9. Somebody belt that out and read it out for me? 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. Four through six. Uh, read, read seven as well. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. So they go from doing that to worshiping all of these various gods. Um, let's get in and talk about this cycle that they're about to head into. Um, we'll just move on because we've got to watch our time. Uh, where are we at? It says, In his anger against, uh, against the, uh, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. Remember that word plundered? When's the last time we saw plundered? Egypt. Yeah. They plundered the Egyptians before they left uh, you know, to wander the wilderness. And it says, And he sold them to their enemies all around, and they were no longer able to resist. Um, you see this pattern that's going to develop in 11 to 23. And we talked about this before. All right? So here's the pattern. We, we've discussed this. Let me hit on it again. Okay? You're going to find the Israelites over and over and over, hopefully you guys can see this, are going to find themselves wrapped up in sin. That sin is going to lead them to slavery. That slavery is going to lead them to deep sorrow. It's going to lead them, I'm using the word, it's what I learned, called supplication. And the only reason I use that word is that way they can all start with S. Then it leads them to salvation. And I really did not create enough room on that. This is a cycle of our life. It's a cycle of judges. We're going to see this cycle repeated a thousand times. Um, and, and some of us know. We get up and we find ourselves involved in sin. Now, sometimes this cycle is quick. It's fast. Uh, I think sometimes it depends on the degree of the sin. The severity of the sin. How deep we are into it. But you guys know, if you've ever found yourself caught deep, deep, deep into sin, this is a much slower process. And, and honestly, the sorrow can be much, much greater depending on the consequences. Some of you guys know that you can go very quick through the cycle. You're sitting there, you have a conversation, you find yourself getting into maybe some gossip. Or you kind of feel like, man, I should have said that about that person. And you feel kind of bad about it. And you may fly through the cycle very quickly. You become aware of your sin. And you realize, man, it grabs a hold of your heart. It holds on to you. And you feel like, man, I don't want to do this. I should have said that. And you find yourself at a point of sorrow. And you cry out and say, God, I'm so sorry. Not just that I'm sorry, you cry out to God for help. God help me. God, help me not to do this anymore. And you find this point of salvation where you find freedom. Or maybe if that sin is much more intense, you go from that sin and that slavery holds you. It's an addiction. Or maybe you found yourself in a situation you know, where you, you know you shouldn't be in and it's danger, danger, danger. And you're in it. And it holds you captive. And you can't see, I don't know how to get out of this. I'm so messed up. I'm so far into this thing. I don't even, I don't even know how to find my way out. And it grabs a hold of you. You know, you find yourself either hiding things or keeping secrets or trying to, you know, how do I handle all of this? And we've all been there, or at least we know somebody's been there. We live this world with its addiction, whatever it is. Then finally, there's this breaking point where you're like, man, I feel horrible about what I'm doing. I don't want to live here anymore. And finally, you cry to God and say, God, give me freedom. And that freedom brings salvation. And then all of a sudden, we find ourselves going through the cycle over and over and over. And that is, in a nutshell, the book of Judges. So, um, and this is what's about to happen to them. Let's, uh, let's keep looking at this. We've talked about the bales. Um, I want to I camp out a couple of verses here because of time and, and get back into some of the controversy. Um, verse 19. Skip over there real quick. we got to find it here. It says, uh, we'll, we'll finish up. Verse 17. Verse 16 says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved, uh, saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges 
but prostituted themselves to their gods and worshipped them. Please, please don't clean that up and make it safe. If, if my grandmother was in here, she's passed away, I'd have to teach this the same way I'm doing right now. When it says they prostituted themselves, that's horrific. That word is everything you think it means. And in fact, um, I would not do this with students. Hey guys, but I'm going to do it with you all. Um, because you're old enough to handle it. Uh, I want to convey God's words on this topic. Because we throw out that word, we fly through that word, they prostituted themselves as if it's just no big deal. Ah, we're done. Fly through that. Just a little phrase. But if you understood the depth and gravity of how mad God gets over this, look at me real quick at the book of Ezekiel. These are the verses that you hope kids don't find in the Bible. Okay? These are the ones that, like, when I was a kid sitting in church, sometimes I would look at these texts and go, Woo! And I'd blush and I'd show my buddies. You remember those moments? Did you ever find of those? You go through reading Song of Solomon when you were supposed to? Yeah. Yeah. This is one of those. But I need to juxtapose that little word and let you see the depth of depravity on it. Um, i got to find out where it was at because I didn't mark it in my Bible. Um, here it is. Uh, verse 18. Oh, sorry. Chapter 23. Listen to me. I'm about to read something from Scripture that for some of you is going to be utterly shocking. Okay? I'm not doing it to gross you out. I'm not doing it to offend you. It's straight from Scripture. What I'm trying to do, these are the words of God and how He feels when His children chase after idolatry. These are one of the verses that you don't go home tonight you know, and read as bedtime to your grandchildren or your children. Okay, This is not the text you pull out. All right, And I can tell you, it's the first time I've ever probably read this text out loud. Do you ever read this out loud before? As part of a lesson or sermon, you know what I'm going to? Pretty vile, isn't it? Okay, here it is. Uh, the context in this is God telling the story of two adulterous uh, sisters. And he's basically talking about Jerusalem's sin. He's talking about Israel's sin, Judah's sin, how utterly messed up these two sisters are. Okay? Israel and Jude, they're just a train wreck. Here's what God says. Uh, you're about to be beyond offended, and I'm not trying to, but we're going to flip back and read Judges again here in a second. Um, verse 16. As soon as she saw them, she lusted after them and sent message to them in Chaldea. Okay, basically, she says, Come here, come on, come on, come on, come on. I want to see you. Just like the Israelites and judges going, show us your idols. Show us what you've got. We can worship lots of gods here. Come on, come on, come on. And that's what judges are doing. It says, And the Babylonians came to her, to her bed of love, and in their lust they defiled her. This is God speaking. It says, And after she had been defiled by them, she turned away from them in disgust. Did we just talk about this? You see it? See the cycle? After she defiled, she'd been defiled by them, she turned away from them in disgust. But watch what she doesn't do. When she carried on her prostitution openly and exposed her nakedness, I turned away from her in disgust, just as I turned away from her sister. Yet she became more and more promiscuous. Okay, here's the deal. Sometimes we call them gateway drugs. Um, my nephew, my great, he, uh, he, he passed away uh, from a drug overdose. And I know that at a young age, he never intended on doing that. But all of a sudden, it's seventh grade party, I'm going to have a beer. Eighth grade party, I'm going to have a few more. It's all of a sudden, I get in high school, I'm going to smoke a little, you know, start smoking cigarettes, smoking some pot. And, and the issue is, it's never quite enough. But I know this in my own life. 
my wife is the only woman, I'll say this out loud, only woman that I've ever had intimacy with in my life. But I can tell you that, my goodness, in high school I did some stupid things. Holy smokes, man. Uh, I did dumb things, and, and I regret those things. It was stupid. Some of you guys know, like, yep, yep, I remember that. I remember that in high school. Some of you guys were pure of heart and did good things. Some of you guys were, no, yeah, I made, I made some mistakes in high school, college, all right? No matter where you're at. What ends up happening is it's like this progression. It's not like you, you start off one day and you're holding hands, and then the next day you put your arm around this girl or this guy, and the next day the physical nature increases and increases. You ever notice you don't ever go backwards in that relationship to just holding hands? It's like this thing's got to keep increasing, keep increasing. The stakes keep getting higher and higher until you either say, I need to back out of this relationship because it's really unhealthy, or you find yourself in a place you don't need to be. Okay? I would think that this room of adults, all of you kind of like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I get it. It started here. I didn't want it to go there. But all of a sudden, it escalates. And the interesting thing is, it would have taken you maybe a month or a week to have it escalate to holding hands. Like, you talk to her, you talk to him, and all the time, remember that first time your hands kind of brushed, and you did that little pinky touch thing, you're like, what? <laughs> remember those days at the movie theater? You're like, yeah! That was awesome! Our pinkies touched! You're like, you like, lay your hand in awkward positions just so that girl might happen to brush up next to it. And it was like, she brushed your hand, you're like, whoo! And you like felt this fire, and all of a sudden, you know, the next thing you know, you're holding hands, and then you go to interlocking digits. It's like, yeah, it's real now. You know, it's so interlocking digits. The next thing you know, like, yeah, I got my arm around her, and like, woo. And all of a sudden, you don't ever get quite as excited about the little pinky touch anymore. You know what I mean? Pinky touch is old news, it's gone. And all of a sudden, what would have taken you a week or two to bump up to holding hands, put your arm around her? Now you just walk up to her and immediately get your arm around her, and you don't even think about it anymore. It's just. Fast. And all of a sudden it escalates to another level. Escalates to another level. And what would have maybe taken you a month or maybe six months to get to this point physically, now you find yourself that in a dating relationship you can be there as soon as the movie's over on your way home. You get what I'm talking about? That's what happens with the judges. It's, it's every time a judge sits them right, every time they go through this cycle, the stakes get higher and higher. The, the prostitution gets more and more. The promiscuity gets worse and worse. They get more and more corrupt, more and more defiled. And it's not like they ever, they just get further and further away. Just like these two sisters. Let's go back to this text. It says this. It says, The Babylonians came to her to bed of love, and of their lust they defiled her. And after she had been defiled by them, she turned away from disgust. Watch the next verse. When she carried on a prostitution openly and exposed her nakedness, I turned away from disgust in her... Um, just I turned away from her sister, yet she became more, like the illustration I just gave you, more and more promiscuous. And she recalled the days of her youth, even when she was a prostitute in Egypt. Then she left. I don't know if I want to read this. I might just let you guys. Why don't you all just read verse 20 and 21 on your own? And we'll just let you hold on to that. Do I need to read it out loud? I know nobody else read it out loud. Did you read it? Did you read 20 and 21? This is God talking. How utterly vile do you have to be for God to describe you like that? I'll read it because I see somebody gets down your Bibles. See, she became more and more promiscuous. Verse 20. There she lusted after her lovers whose genitals were like those of donkeys whose omission was like that of horses. How utterly disgusting for the God of the universe to use that language. So you long for her lewdness of your youth when in Egypt your bosom was caressed and your young breasts were fondled. 
this is the God of the universe talking. Again, not what you're going to use for Bible study with your kids tonight before they go to bed. Back to Judges. The point we're trying to make right now is this. When it says in verse 17, yet they would not listen to the judges, but prostituted themselves with their God and worshipped them. When God says he's angry about that, I need you to hear those words in a different tone. And maybe, maybe you have heard them in that tone, maybe you haven't. I need you to hear disgust. I need you to hear jilted lover. I need you to hear unfaithful wife, unfaithful husband. I need you to conjure up all of the tension and anger you might have. Everything you might feel. Everything that you might flash in your heart at that moment and know that God of the universe is going, What are you doing? Is what he's saying to Israel. You're cheating on me. When he says this, he hurts. Deeply. Deeply hurt. Enough hurt that he knows it will eventually cost his son his life. Our prostitution of foreign gods, what we do with Satan, what we do with sin, is much like that. And all of that anger gets poured onto Jesus at Calvary. Moving Good night. It's tough stuff, isn't it? Let's read through a little bit more. Verse 20 Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel. And said, because this nation has violated the covenant, almost, it was, it's a marriage covenant. How many times has God referred himself as a bridegroom? Referred to us as the church as his bride. He said, I laid down for their forefathers. They would not listen to me. I no longer will drive them out before the nations. As an interesting word, I no longer drive out before any of them. The nations Joshua left when he died. I'll use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord. And listen, that's mercy. Because if there's a test, what does that imply? What's it imply? You have a chance. You got a chance. It's like, actually, you're saying exactly. <laughs> exactly why you're saying there's a chance. So you know what movie we're talking about. Um, I'll use the test Israel and see whether or not they can keep the way of the Lord and walk in as their forefathers did. The Lord allowed those nations to remain, but he did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. Verse 3, we're going to look at these next few verses. These are the nations the Lord left to test. All Israelites who had not experienced um, any of the wars of Canaan. It says, verse 2, He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. That's an interesting concept. Um, Would you read that? Um, We're about done here. (coughs) That's an interesting concept. Listen to that again, verse 2. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. What do you think of when you hear that? I I had in my mind, ah, it's like military boot camp. That God's going to let them get trained. He's going to let them prepare. Until two days ago when I was walking through FDR, and I'm walking through FDR's monument there in Washington, D.C., and I cannot remember the quote. But I know the quote starts off and it says, I've seen war. There's an amazing quote in between it and it ends with, I hate war. I think in this moment, it's not so much he's just trying to tactically get them ready, as much as he says, I'm going to let you see war for what it really is. I'm going to let you see oppression for what it really is. I'm going to let you see battle for what it really is. And he says he did this not only only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. He says, I'm going to let you see what it's like. You didn't trust me? You didn't trust me. Your forefathers got to experience battle at Ai, Jericho, 
You know, they get to experience my going before them. You're not going to get that. You're going to get something else. You're going to get some. You're not going to get the Jericho experience. You're getting something new, and it's going to hurt. And I'm going to let you go through it. And he says, then five rulers of Philistines, and he goes through all these nations. I don't have time to read. He says, verse 4, they were left to test the Israelites to see whether or not they would obey the Lord's commands, which he had given the forefathers through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Uh, they took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters uh, and, and, their, and sons to their gods. Let me just end with this. I, I'm out of time here. Um, there's a progression here. Remember that time I talked to you guys a few weeks ago about Lot? Remember Lot? Remember the whole thing we talked about in Genesis? Walk me through what you remember about that. Lot and Sodom and all that stuff. What do you remember? He was away. He was, okay, near. 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 And then what happened? He was in. He goes in. And then what happens? He was taken out. Okay, we're going to see the same progression right now happen here. Lot starts off and he lives near Sodom, knowing that they're wicked, knowing that they're just messed up. The next thing you know with Lot, just a few, next chapter, he was living in Sodom. You know, and the next chapter, or a few chapters later, he's sitting at the city gates leading it. These people are so corrupt, the progression happens like this. Number one is you see this. They lived among the Canaanites. This is the, the Canaanization of Israel. Like, I know that we talk about culture wars in our culture. Okay? Whether you are liberal, conservative, either way, you can say, well, there's a culture war. doesn't matter what your, your political bent is. This goes beyond culture war. This is absolutely a war on their culture. They're being annihilated right now, and they won't drive it out. They chose willingly to live among the Canaanites. Step two, they intermarried with them. Now think about it. Once you get married, this gets complicated. I got in-laws. I got outlaws. I got all kinds of stuff I'm dealing with now. I mean, how many guys have ever had to marry in a family you didn't want to marry into? Don't raise your hands. <laughs> but you know what that's like. It's like, oh, crud. They're part of us now. You've got a big family reunion. Like, yeah, they're going to be here. Awesome. <laughs> going to be great and fantastic. You know, your kid brings home somebody they're going to marry and, you know, you're like, yeah, they're cute. What are their parents, parents like? That's what I got to know. Uh, you know, you show up at the wedding and you're like, oh, all the tensions. And you can imagine because when they intermarry, now we have land we're sharing. We get cattle we're sharing. We get kids. We're, kids we're sharing. We're crying out loud. Now that's my grandkid. And I'm sending the grandkid over here and he's bowing down to a phallic symbol. And man, I don't know. And then he wants to bring that into our house. And hey, Grandpa, look at the picture I drew for you. Ah, yikes. You know, it's, it's a difficult world to live in if you're an Israelite. It's tough. They're working, working bales and asherah. They're marrying into their kids. I mean, this thing's just getting more and more ingrained. And finally, it says they served their gods. Each step is a natural step that leads to the next. It's kind of the frog in the kettle. Alright, last phrase we'll give you we'll be done. I've given you a quote every week. We're going to give it to you again. We're still trying to find out where it comes from. Remember the quote? This is one of, you're gonna, we're going to hear this every week till we're done. And you'll know by back to your hand. What's the quote? Whatever you begin to tolerate, whatever you begin to tolerate, you eventually come to accept. Whatever you're going to tolerate, you eventually come to accept. That's a story of judges, and honestly, folks, it's a story of me. A good chance it might just be the story of me. You begin to tolerate, you eventually come to accept. All right. Next week, not going to be nearly as vile. Okay? But hopefully you can cut me slack considering I was reading directly from Scripture. And if you want to know more about how God feels about this, read the book of Hosea this week. Okay? It is a mind-boggling book. You can learn all about Gomer. 
Don't name your kid Gomer or your dog Gomer. But I can tell you, it's tough stuff for God. His heart hurts with that. All right, thank you guys. See you next week. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.